Hey, hey, water coolians, welcome back to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. As always, I hope you are staying safe and sane. It's been an uh, absolute blessing to hear from those who have shared about their experiences from all over the world uh, during these times and how you're trying to continue that normalness in a time of unnormalness. I'm so, I'm so thankful we have the ability to share a conversation together and continue those conversations. For those who are interested in being a part of that conversation, reach out to us on Instagram at watercoolertalkpod. Once again, that's on Instagram at watercoolertalkpod. Uh, that seems to be a place I found people feel comfortable connecting. Um, at least I feel comfortable connecting with people on uh, Instagram. Uh, as you know from previous episodes, I'm not the biggest fan of Twitter, uh, but I have been working on another form of communication in the aspect of, I don't know, maybe having like an alternative phone number so you can text or call to have a more personal conversation about some of the stories we discuss on the uh, the podcast. So that's it. That's in the works. But to today's episode, we are joined by author Cecil Harris from a remote call in New York. Cecil is a veteran sports journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the Associated Press, New York Daily News, USA Today, and other media outlets. His latest book, Different Strokes, Serena Venus and the Unfinished Black Tennis Revolution, published by the University of Nebraska Press, is now available. Throughout this episode, Cecil is able to share his vast amount of knowledge within sports and the history of black athletes to help build uh, a very fun and productive conversation. One of the highlights of this episode for me was having the opportunity to learn about Athea Gibson, the first black person of color to break the color barrier in tennis. Years before Jackie Robinson did it in baseball, uh, she was this once-in-a-lifetime talent that history seems to have unfortunately forgot about. So I'm very appreciative of being able to have Cecil on the podcast and be able to explore the ins and outs of who Athea Gibson was and her impact on not only on the sport of tennis, but women's sports in general. So in this episode, we discuss the Ohio State University attempting to trademark the word the, uh, spelled T-H-E, and how players are taking back ownership of their name. Athea Gibson and the Black Role Model. And finally, Cecil and I have a conversation on the popular, pretty popular discussion around equal pay in sports with the 28 women of the U.S. national women's soccer team taking a defining stance in being the voice of their sports future. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 35 titled The Legacy of Athea Gibson with Cecil Harris. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. And I know you've you like mentioned you were uh, you've been a sports journalist. You've covered a multitude of sporting events. Uh, before we get into the grunt of the episode, what's been that one event that you've been to? You have to physically have been at uh, that stood out to you as the pinnacle of your sports experience. It's interesting because it happened so early in my career. I didn't appreciate it enough at the time, but the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta, I realized I interviewed Muhammad Ali. Not many people had a chance to do that. I covered boxing for Gannett News Service in USA Today, and only one American boxer won a medal that year, won a gold medal. It was considered disappointing, but middleweight from Philadelphia named David Reed won the gold medal in Hollywood fashion, hopelessly behind on points, needed a knockout to win. He knocked out a Cuban. So I ran over to Muhammad Ali. What do you think of David Reed? And Ali said, 
he's a bad boy. And and I answered some other questions and and people were pulling him away from me, but I I used, he's a bad boy. You know, that was 24 years ago, but so many great athletes were there. I mean, Carl Lewis and Jackie Joyner Kersey and Michael Johnson in track and field and at boxing, Evander Holyfield, Joe Frazier, Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, all these legends and looking back on it. And I was a you know, young sports writer assigned to cover the Olympics. That's the only time I had a chance to cover the Olympics. Sometimes I wish I could name something more contemporary, but looking back on the people I met and interacted with, that was um, the, the biggest thing I, I covered. Yeah. As I grew up loving boxing, I just actually, during this uh, quarantine, I just finished um, Mike Tyson's book on his life. So it's it's like, for me, that's interesting because to know like the idea of who Muhammad Ali was, and then you ask him for a quote and he responds in a very Muhammad Ali type that's way. Right. I think, yeah, that's a very fun sports moment for you. It was. All right, Cecil, are you ready to jump into our first news story of the day? Yes, I am. This is is from The Spun. Ohio State has filed a trademark application for the word the. You've probably heard of Ohio State players, coaches, fans, and alums referring to the school as the Ohio State University. Now the university is trying to trademark the word the, spelled T-H-E. Josh Gerben, trademark attorney, uncovered a trademark application for the word the by Ohio State on August 8th of 2019. The school has planned to use the word, once again, the word the, uh, spelled T-H-E, on the front of shirts, hats, and other merchandise. Gerben, who states the claim has a few issues, stated, In order for a trademark to be registered for a brand of clothing, the trademark must be used in a trademark fashion. In other words, it has to be used on tagging or labeling for the products. In this case, just putting the word the on the front of a hat or on the front of a shirt is not sufficient trademark use. A trademark is a type of intellectual property consisting of a product, service, recognizable sign, design, or expression that identifies its specific branding in a recognized society. The first trademark was passed in 1266 under the reign of Henry III of England, which required all bakers to use a distinctive mark for the bread they sold. Those who obtain a federal trademark have claim over the trademarked item for a period of 10 years, with a review at the fifth or sixth year. Copyrights, which you may be a little more familiar with as an author, Cecil, are protective of literary and artistic work such as books, paintings, films, and sculptures. Uh, This is not the first time an organization or a person has tried to trademark a relatively common word or phrase. Paris Hilton trademarked the catchphrase, that's hot. Paranormal romance author Christine Feehan attempted to trademark the word dark. Now Tampa Bay Buccaneer quarterback Tom Brady, still weird to say, unsuccessfully tried to trademark the unlike nickname of Tom Terrific. And LeBron James was unsuccessful in his claim to trademark Taco Tuesday. A month later of the covering of the story, Ohio State's bid to trademark the was denied by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, ruling the word is essentially too common and too commonly used for one entity to have domain over it. Their rejection also states, Registration is refused because the applied for mark as used on the specimen of record is merely a decorative or ornamental feature of applicants' clothing and thus does not function as a trademark to indicate the source of applicants' clothing and to identify and distinguish applicants from others. That's a little more technical term for the trademark technolists out there. So Cecil, I have uh, a two-part question here. I want to, we'll do the first part and then we'll get to the second part. The first part of the question is when we discuss the ownership of words, 
Do you believe someone, whether that be a school, organization, celebrity, athlete, author, etc., should be able to file a trademark claim on a word or phrase that has been previously available to everyone? I don't. And in the Ohio State case, as soon as I heard about it, I thought about a seminar I attended two years ago at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and as I walked in, I thought about the Ohio State case and I asked some students at the George Washington University, would you object if Ohio State works to somehow get the right to use the when your school also uses it? And there must be other schools that use it. They said, oh, no, that wouldn't be fair. So when the judge ruled the way uh, he did, I wasn't surprised because it's just too common. I mean, Ohio State football is a national brand. They recruit athletes from all over the country. So I'm sure they saw themselves as being bigger than any other school that uses the, but they're really not. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you look at like the U in uh, the University of Miami. That's I mean, right. there's other schools, yeah, like you said, that use the and or the spelled T-H-E. And yeah, it's one of those cases where, yeah, it's it, this is kind of a ridiculous claim. I understand from like a marketing standpoint, they have to kind of cover all their basis. But yeah, it's, you're, you're, trying to, you're trying to claim one of the most used words in the English language dictionary. And uh, obviously for them, it did not go over well. (laughs) That's right. I think it would have had to be something truly unique, like um, the Los Angeles Lakers of uh, Pat Riley. They won three consecutive championships. And Pat Riley, the head coach, trademarked 3P because he actually started using that term. It was not used by media before Pat Riley said, oh, we did a 3P. He trademarked that. So any other team in any other sport that wins three consecutive championships They'd have to basically go through Pat Riley if they wanted to put three-peat on T-shirts, caps, or other items because he had enough foresight to basically coin the term and popularize it and trademark it. That's different from the or the you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's, you know, as like that technical uh, definition kind of explains, like it just wasn't unique enough. And kind of going into the second part of this question, like why, particularly in athletes, does it seem we're seeing an increase in attempted trademarks, including, you know, nicknames with Tom Terrific and Tom uh, Brady, phrases, etc. What's to me, at least, seems like any other time in history. Well, I think athletes get the idea now that they are not just independent contractors, that they are brands. In fact, I interviewed uh, former race car driver Danica Patrick years ago, and she said, I'm not just a race car driver, I'm a brand. She was the first athlete to say that to me, but hardly the only one who has said that to me. Sure, Tom Brady changes teams. He's now with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers after 20 years with the New England Patriots. And he wants to trademark Tom Terrific, but I'm from New York City, and I grew up watching Tom Seaver of the New York Mets. That was his nickname. Tom Seaver made Tom Terrific famous back in the 1960s and 70s. The athletes get the idea today, you know, for example, Tiger Woods. If you want to find out what tournament he's playing in, you basically have to go to TigerWoods.com. He's not sending out press releases. He's not having publicists contact the media the way they used to. You have to go on his website and an increasing number of athletes want to control the narrative and market themselves and brand themselves. So that's why certain athletes have logos. Michael Jordan's logo of him flying through the air with his legs, scissor kick about to dunk. And Derek Jeter has a logo. So many other athletes now want to brand themselves with their initials, the nickname, the logo. And I think that 
it's not going to end anytime soon. I think we're going to see more female athletes start to do that because that's an area what we really haven't seen uh, prominent women athletes get into. Serena Williams has a logo, which is a tennis legend. Um, other female athletes of prominence will probably start doing the same thing because they see it working successfully for so many male athletes. And it's an interesting thing, Adam, because when you're in a team sport, you're supposed to be all about team. But within that team concept, Michael Jordan could break out and basically trademark the what is called the Jumpman logo for Nike. LeBron James is in a team sport. He has his own. Tom Brady has the TB on his cap. Roger Federer, the RF that he no longer owns, by the way. That's an interesting story. Nike owns Roger Federer's initials because he switched from Nike to Uniqlo. Okay. And Nike said, oh, we're not going to let you have your initials anymore. That's why when Federer plays tennis now, he doesn't have his own initials on his shirt or if he chooses to wear a cap because Nike owns Federer's initials. That's how, I'll say, ludicrous it can become. I, know, I like how you said... Um it's about controlling the narrative because it's like, I, I totally understand, especially in the social media age and putting public content out. It's like, you don't want someone else making money off of your name or a yeah. putting like t-shirts of Tom terrific and making money off of, you know, that idea of who you are. So I definitely understand it from a athlete specifically in this case, an athlete's point of view. It's like, I want to control the narrative on how people are using my name. You mentioned Tiger Woods. I think that was a good example of he's controlling what's coming out about him when it comes to uh, where he's playing. So he has complete control because you see it every day how the media can kind of, you know, use their back channels and kind of use their phrasing to make someone potentially look bad when really they might not be in the bad or something. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's athletes being assertive and basically saying, I'm controlling as much as I can control, whereas in the past, the teams used to control everything. It, it's changed to the point where sometimes an athlete might seem more loyal to his endorser than to his particular team. You know, you have so-called Nike athletes, Adidas athletes, Reebok athletes, even in team sports. That can be a bit much, but I understand an athlete's need to say, um, I want it to come through me. If you want to use my name or my likeness, come to me first. And that's an area where college athletes had a favorable ruling with um, the video game industry. For years, the NCAA would market basketball video games. And you would see, for example, UCLA number 31. If you're really a fan, you knew that was a player named Ed O'Bannon, but they did not use Ed O'Bannon's name for all the sales of those popular video games. Ed O'Bannon didn't get a dime. And he was the one who led the movement to say, hey, you're using my likeness. That was the number I wore at UCLA. And you're showing me doing fabulous things and you're making money off it and I'm not. I, I mean, I'm, I love uh, NCAA football 14. Denard Robinson's on the cover. He didn't make any money from that. So it's yeah, I definitely understand like when it comes to athletes, obviously they make money from their sport, but when that sport ends, I mean, famously, you know, there's a good 30 for 30 documentary by ESPN about it. Athletes go broke very quickly 
because outside of sports, they're not doing. Many athletes aren't doing enough to bring in alternative revenue streams. So I understand why an athlete would say, "Well, this is a potential alternative revenue stream." You know, in your book, Different Strokes, you talk about the pay difference between the singles champions being 3.8 million, if I'm correct, and the doubles champion 700,000 for the U.S. Tennis Open because top stars are less likely to compete in doubles because they potentially could get injured and they could potentially hurt their opportunity to have a revenue from their sports career. So I definitely understand how you know sports careers don't last for forever. Brett Favre is an anomaly. I understand how they want to make as much money as they can while they're playing. You know that's a, a conversation me and my dad have a lot. He he's into like the team loyalty and you should stay with your team. And I'm into like I understand that, but at the end of the day, you got to make your money to support your family once you're done in sports. That's right. The the careers are short. The average NFL career is still less than four years. We focus on the superstars. Tom Brady, an anomaly, twenty years. But many quarterbacks, many football players, period, just come and go. So maximize your earning potential while you can. And if you're known for something, you can exploit that or basically cash in on that. And I, I mentioned、uh, Danica Patrick, the race car driver. She's been retired from NASCAR for several years, but she's still one of the top、um, money earners among female athletes because she put certain things in place where she continues to make money based on what she used to do, not what she does any longer. And I think、uh, a tennis player who retired early this year, Maria Sharapova, will be able to do the same thing because over the past 15 years or so. She's been able to leverage her popularity and her fame to the point where she has products, a line of candies called Sugar Pova, for example, <laughs> and the deals that she's made with major sponsors that will continue to pay her long after her career is over. And let's face it, the top male athletes have been doing that for a long time. Michael Jordan is almost sixty. He continues to make crazy money for what he did thirty. 25, 20 years ago, as the best basketball player on the planet. That's why I mentioned earlier, Adam. I think we're going to see more prominent female athletes follow that model. Venus Williams is 40. Serena Williams is 39. Well, will be later this year. Venus turns 40 in June. Serena turns 39 in September. So they're much closer to the end of their careers, but they are global stars who should be able to market their names and images. Long after their playing days. Well, yeah, and I think you know we'll talk about her a bit later. But Athea Gibson, you talk about her in your book. Even though she was successful in tennis, later on in golf a bit, she ended up poor, and she needed a fundraiser, a million dollar fundraiser, by her doubles partner to extend her life eight years. But yeah, it's it's about getting your money and making sure you're safe in your life because just because millions and millions of people are watching you. I mean, it's still a job to these people, and they have to make a living, and they have to be able to afford to live on after their careers are over. Yeah, and I, and I think those business decisions, Adam, will shorten certain athletes' careers, especially if they're in very physical sports.、Uh, we've seen some prominent football players just walk away in recent years.、Uh, I'm a San Francisco 49ers fan. Patrick Willis was a perennial All-Pro, but while in San Francisco, he got to know a lot of people in the tech world out in Silicon Valley. And rather than being hurt all the time, playing hurt all the time, he abruptly left pro football and is working basically more in the, the tech sector now and making a lot of money. And if you can make some contacts, let's say off the field, off the court. 
you can use your, your, your fame, your celebrity in a way that you can make even more money for a longer period of time than you would you know, putting your body through the rigors of a professional sport. I, I could see more star athletes saying, well, I don't need to do this anymore. I, I'm making enough money from you know, other avenues that I've established for myself. And I think careers could end up being shorter than they would have otherwise because you don't need to play quite as long. Well, yeah, I think that's a beautiful point you brought up. And like, yeah, you're seeing a lot of these athletes saying, you know what, I'm going to make my money now. I'm going to find other avenues to invest in. And I'm going to get out before my brain turns to mush and I can't even remember my kids' names. Yeah. I think that's why we're saying fewer people go into boxing, for example. It's a dangerous business. It's a blood sport. <laughs> yeah. If you can do something else for a shorter period of time, you don't you don't go to boxing. <laughs> even, though you, even though you got some gloves, it's still a hit to the head is a hit to the head. <laughs> For sure. Uh, yeah, but kind of just finishing the story and wrapping it back to uh, the Ohio State University, I definitely understand what they're trying to do as we talked about controlling their narrative. But as you know, you kind of have to be unique about what you trademark. And then also talking about understanding why more and more athletes, I mean, pretty much becoming celebrities, are trying to make money off of their name well past their careers are over. And you know, another interesting another interesting thing about that Ohio State story, Adam, the university would have benefited if the court had ruled in its favor. Okay, you can trademark the because the, the large Ohio State fan base, which is national, if not global, talks about them as the. But what about the individual Ohio State stars that made that team so successful? Were they going to get a cut of that money? No. Yeah, because I mean, we're seeing we're seeing in California, obviously, trying out, you know, with paying college players. And I mean, this will, I'll have to have you on for another episode to talk about uh, paying college players because I'm a huge supporter of doing it. There's enough money, but I feel like we could talk for hours. <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, if you're bringing in revenue for a university, you should be getting paid. Books and tuition, not enough. I would like to welcome to the show Cecil Harris. Cecil is a veteran sports journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the Associated Press, New York Daily News, US Today, and other media outlets. He is the author of four books and his latest work, Different Strokes, which I mentioned in the uh, first story, Serena Vit. Serena, Venus, and the Unfinished Black Tennis Revolution, uh, which is published by the University of Nebraska Press, is now available. Cecil, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Adam. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Cecil, you mentioned how your writing is based on the intersection of sports and sociology. Can you speak a bit more to that, and especially the impact of the loss of sports in such a time that we're currently in? Interesting questions. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, playing a variety of sports. Not very well, but loving <laughs> the, the, the process of playing yeah. sports. Mm -hmm. And because I'm in New York, multiple teams in every sport, two baseball teams, uh, two football teams, two basketball teams, now three hockey teams. So sports constantly. The U.S. Open would come through here every year. The Milrose games and track and field would come through New York every year. So I really immersed myself in sports and began to take more of an interest in how people perceive athletes and how athletes perceive themselves. And I can harken back to a movie I saw 31 years ago. Do you remember Do the Right Thing, the Spike Lee movie? I've heard of it. It's, on, it's actually on my watch list to, for movies to watch. It's an excellent movie that was basically set in my old neighborhood, the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn, New York. And there's a key scene in the movie. Um, John Turturro plays the son of the pizza shop owner. And Spike Lee basically delivered pizzas from Sal's Pizzeria. And Turturro's character, frankly, was a racist, 
but a huge Magic Johnson fan. He would wear a Magic Johnson jersey and extol the virtues of Magic Johnson. Spike Lee's character finally asked him, well, how can you be so racist and love Magic Johnson? And Turturro says, well, Magic, he's not like black. He's, he's Magic. He's different. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> and that, that that struck me as something that I really needed to think more about and just see how, look into how athletes are perceived. O.J. Simpson once said, and it's captured in the um, O.J. documentary that won the Academy Award several years ago. He actually said, I'm not black. I'm O.J. Yep. Yes. Jay-Z has used that line in a song before. Yeah. I mean, so it just shows how if you're a sports superstar in this society and let's say you're black, you are put on a pedestal by whites who may not want a black family living on their block, may not want their children playing with black children, may not socialize with any black people. But, oh, wow, look at Magic Johnson play basketball. Look at Tiger Woods play golf. Look at Serena Williams play tennis. I'm always interested in that intersection, sports and sociology, not only how others perceive athletes, but how athletes perceive themselves. How many times, Adam, have you heard a case of an athlete being pulled over by a police officer who wants to write a ticket and the athlete says, do you know who I am? They expect to get off because they are a a star athlete. So they often put themselves above everybody else because they're so used to being treated that way. So I looked into that in a variety of of sports and I, I just find that so interesting. I've gone from hockey to baseball to tennis, and that's just three of the sports. I can investigate that, delve into it, and in other sports as well. How athletes are perceived by society, and how they perceive themselves. Yeah, it's so that's such an interesting way of thinking about it. You know, one of the reasons I love sports is because it does it transcends race, it transcends you know religion, it's or sex, um, gender, whatever. And it's about it's about this game that you know a lot of us grew up loving, whether it be whatever sport. You know, I grew up you know, loving baseball and hockey, obviously coming from Minnesota. Um, So yeah, it is. That's one of the things, you know, especially in times like this, you know, when sports do transcend all these things, it's, it's tough for people who live vicariously through the achievements of these sports athletes. And as I mentioned, they're becoming celebrities with social media and not to have them. It's, you know, some people's release. It's like going to work out, but going to watch LeBron James dunk over a whole team, you know, it's, it's, it is that release. And I think people are missing that. So I definitely can understand how people are upset. At the end of the day, I like how you talk about kind of ex- how you explain that intersection. I think it's such a, a beautiful way of thinking about how sports work within society. Yeah, that's it. I mean, so often, um, well, when there was racial unrest in the South in the 60s, I remember seeing the stories of how they sent the football coach from Alabama, Paul Bear Bryant. He would wear these hound tube hats. He was a legendary coach at Alabama. They sent him into the black community to try to ease tensions because black people respected Coach Bryant. You know, they couldn't have sent, let's say, another politician in there. It wouldn't have had as much of an impact. There's a famous story about Michael Jordan, which tells the other side of the story. In 19, I believe, 92, Mayor of Charlotte, Harvey Gantt, who was black, was running against uh, Jesse Helms for a Senate seat. And people thought, well, if Michael Jordan endorses Harvey Gantt, he's going to win because everybody in North Carolina loves Michael Jordan. 
Michael Jordan's response apparently was, well, I'm not going to get involved in that. Well, why not? Well, Republicans buy sneakers, too. Yeah, that's a good that's a, I mean, I get I get that point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Michael Jordan believed, hey, for me to endorse a black man for the U.S. Senate would, might cost me sales of my Nike wear. I wish he had tested that theory. <laughs> but he chose not to. And, and Harvey Gantt never became a United States senator. And we still don't have any black men in the United States Senate. Here we are, you know, 28 years after that. It's interesting. I, it's oh, it's it's so interesting. And then like a section that really stood out from your book, Different Strokes, which by the way, I have like 13 pages of notes here. So if I'm looking down, I'm looking at my notes. <laughs> uh, but a section that really stood out to me specifically as a male uh, was the chapter regarding the lack of successful black role models in modern tennis. Obviously, I'm not a black man, so I'm unable to share that same experience. Uh, but you mentioned like a black man hasn't competed in a major tennis f- uh, final since Molly View. Is that the correct way to announce, pronounce that? Washington? Well, the last one was Joe Wilford Sanga at the 2008 Australian Open. Uh, uh, Gail Monfils of France is another one who's come close but hasn't made it to a final and the last black uh, tennis player to win a major title was Yannick Noah of France, the 1983 French Open. People may remember his son, Joachim Noah, who yeah. was an NBA superstar with the, the Bulls, Chicago yeah. Bulls and a variety of teams. And it's interesting, that father-son dynamic, because the son chose basketball over tennis. And the case of the last African-American man to play in a major final, Malavia Washington, Wimbledon, 1996. Mal Washington has a son who has no interest in tennis. He plays lacrosse. So I, I get the feeling that maybe if the father shared stories about incidents or you know, feeling of, oh, I'm being treated like an outsider here. I'm being treated as if I, I really don't belong here. The son may be more inclined to say, well, if I play basketball, that won't happen to me. If I play football, I'll be accepted. If I play baseball, even though the percentage of blacks in Major League Baseball has declined to about 8%, there are still enough prominent black players for, uh, let's say, a, a young man or a teenager who wants to play baseball to know that you know he's not likely to be the only one on his team. But in tennis, as a black male, you're likely to really stand out for reasons that you're not really comfortable with. You're not standing out because of your tennis. You're standing out because you are a distinct minority in the sport. And it's different with black girls because of what the Williams sisters have done. But there's no black male equivalent. You know, if you want to talk about a black male tennis champion, you're talking about Arthur Ashe. And he played in the 1960s and 70s. Today's young people may only know him as the person whose name is on the big stadium at the U.S. Open. Well, yeah, you even have a chapter on James Blake. And if you Google James Blake, the songwriter comes up. So, <laughs> so like, what needs yeah, yeah. to improve to allow a black man to become successful in tennis on the major stage to become a role model? And, you know, as part of, you, you know, this is your second book covering tennis. You wanted to revisit um, the cultural impact of the Williams sisters does gender matter specifically in the black community when it comes to role models? I think it does matter. And I um, have many of those same questions that you raised. And I, I asked them to uh, Donald Young, who is a black professional tennis player, who I first wrote about in a previous book in 2007 when he was still a teenager. 
and he signed a big endorsement deal with Nike and was represented by IMG, the big talent agency. And they basically spoiled him by putting him out on court against men as a 16-year-old. He was getting crushed by these guys. He wasn't physically ready for that. Yet Donald Young has persevered. He's still on the professional tennis circuit now in his early 30s. Not a star, but making a good living as a professional player, mainly in doubles, but he's had some success in singles. And I put that question to him, Adam, and he said, black boys need to see a black man doing it before the dream becomes real to them. They can see Serena Williams tearing it up in professional tennis. She has the most major titles of any player in the open era, 23. She's obviously a sports icon, but black males don't look at her the same way black females do. Black females are more likely to say, oh, I want to do that. It's real to me because I see Serena doing it. But for black boys and, and young men, they're still looking to the NBA. They still see the story of how LeBron James was raised by a single mom in a housing project in Akron, and look where he is today. And that's more relatable to them. They still see the NFL is 70% black, and they see all these superstars in the NFL. And it, it's more real to them. Mookie Betts now playing for the um, L.A. Dodgers when they get going again. He's going to have a major impact on a lot of young men in South Central and other parts of L.A. who may have turned away from baseball in past years. They'll probably notice him when they didn't notice him when he was starring for the Red Sox. They'll notice him now. Black boys aren't as swayed by the success of the Williams sisters as black females. I wish they were. It's more of the cultural and gender uh, dynamic at work. You know, we've talked about this before in our male vulnerability episode with Adam Hoskin. I think we're, we're, st- we're getting better, but boys growing up, they're like, you know what? If a woman can do it, I could probably do it. And so they want to see a man do it, which, you know, obviously is a very outdated philosophy of thinking, but it's still so ingrained in society that it's like, oh, if Serena and Venus Williams can do it, I can definitely do it. But I want to see a actual black man do it. So I know, boom. And then uh, you mentioned in your book how tennis can get expensive. It's the rackets and the re-rackets and basketball is cheap. That's, you know, history has proven one of the reasons why it took off in the black community is because all you need is a ball and a hoop. It's a very cheap sport. And, you know, uh, philosophy we talked about a lot on the show is people follow love. They follow the community. And if your whole community is playing basketball or playing football, there's a good chance you mentioned those sons of those famous tennis stars going into other sports, probably because their friends and their friends growing up were playing those sports. And they're like, oh, I don't want to go play tennis and be all by myself. I want to go into, you know, a team sport. And especially as a black male or female trying to make it your way in your sport. I mean, once again, I'm not in that race, but I would imagine it's easier to go into a sport where there's other people of your same race around you rather than tennis being a primarily single sport. Yeah, there's no question about it. Um, Young people want to be able to do things that their friends are doing. Mm -hmm. And if their friends are playing football, they want to play football. Their friends are playing basketball. And it's interesting. um, Scoville Jenkins is someone I write about in the book. He grew up in Southwest Atlanta, played basketball, but loved tennis. He chose tennis over basketball And he said he used to be ridiculed in school. This is not that long ago. He was in high school maybe 15 years ago. So we're not talking about ancient history. He would be asked, you know, why are you playing that sissy sport? And, you know, Georgia is one of those states where Friday night football is huge, just like Texas. Friday night football is a thing. And Scoville used to miss the Friday night football games 
because he would be hitting with his coach from 7 p.m. to midnight every Friday. So he wasn't doing the things that his friends were doing socially. He was playing what they perceived as a sissy sport, but that's the sport he loved. He eventually became a professional tennis player for seven years, but he admitted to me and I documented in the book that it was often lonely for him, especially when he was playing in Europe. And for companionship, his father would often make those trips with him. And his father, I quoted him in the book, he talked about how his son was perceived as a young black man in Europe. Basically, European tennis fans would only see him through the prism of the blacks they saw in films and TV shows. So according to the father, they would expect young Scoville Jenkins to have a gun or have marijuana or talk smack or slang or jive. And he wasn't like that. Even though he had braids in his hair and wore saggy pants, he sort of looked the part of what the audiences thought he would be. But he wasn't that person. Scoville was basically not cheered in, when he played in Europe, not booed. There just wouldn't be any reaction. Whereas if you're playing basketball, granted it's a team sport, but there's going to be some reaction to you. You know, if you're a boxer and most of your bouts are in the United States, if you're an MMA and most of your fights are here, there's going to be some reaction to you. You're going to have a fan base. You're going to have a following. But for a lot of black players to this day who are not superstars, when they play on the tennis circuit in Europe or Asia, South America, there's usually not much of a reaction to them at all. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, kind of finishing on the role model is like, you know, these black athletes stepping up and saying, who was your role model? I, I mean, I know for me, like Satchel Paige, which very far ago was a huge role model to me. I remember... I don't remember the name of the book, but it was about this kid could time travel through baseball cards. And the Satchel Page book was one of my favorite. I think it's important to kind of address, you know, who your role model was. And it may not be Michael Jordan or, you know, these big prominent, you know, black athletes that everyone knows. It may just be like, you know, a lot of people have forgotten about Satchel Page, which sucks. But it's, you know, those people like that, I think, are important that we start saying, you know, there's so many potential role models. They just don't have the platform that others may have. That's interesting. I'll tell you a story. I once had a conversation with Spike Lee and he told me about the Jackie Robinson movie that he never got a chance to make. Maybe he can do it now that he is an Academy Award winner. Maybe the money will come through. <laughs> but yeah, and he shared the script online about a month ago and people could read it during, well, February, during Black History Month, the script that he actually wrote for the movie he wanted to make. And I just bring that up be, because um. It's, it's an example of um, young people today would love to hear about Satchel Paige if they knew his story. Spike can only do so much, but if someone else wanted to make a movie about Satchel Paige and just recreate that era of what they called Negro League Baseball and how he was such a great pitcher, and sometimes he would tell his fielders, you guys can sit down. Just sit down and say, I want to strike these guys out. And he would do it. <laughs> that was my favorite story, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. But not enough young people know that name or what he did. Yeah, definitely. Uh, listeners, if you'd like to connect and be more informed about Cecil, you can do so by heading to his website at CecilHarrisBooks.com. Once again, that's CecilHarrisBooks.com. Or by following him on his Twitter at Cecil H. Author. And as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode, through our Podbean page, and under Cecil's episode on our website. Cecil, are you ready to jump into our second news story? of the day. Let's do it. All right. So this is 
this was this is our first going back into the past story. This is going to be a news story from 1957. All right, so this story is from Daytona Beach Morning Journal, July 5th, 1957. Gibson hard advanced to Wimbledon final. Thea Gibson made it a Yankee doodle fall at that tee, sipping Wimbledon by crushing 16-year-old Christine Truman yesterday and setting up an All-Americans women tennis final against California's Darlene Hard. Miss Gibson, the pride of Harlem, dispatched the hopeless outclassed teenage Amazon to the sideline 6-1, 6-1. Miss Hard, a laughing 21-year-old blonde from Montebello, California, eliminated Miss Dorothy Head Nord of Forest Hills, New York, 6-2, 6-3 on the same well-worn center court. The top-seeded Athea and the fifth-seeded Darlene clashed Saturday for the title. Emblem of Women's World Amateur Tennis Supremacy. Athea, a long-limbed, sturdy girl of 29 who hits the ball with the force of a man, has hardly been exerted by the opposition, but the vastly improved Miss Hard may prove a different story. The stuckily built California girl can smash and volley with Athea, and she has a brimming confidence which she seems to have lacked in early tournaments. She has one May flaw which may hurt her against the tournament favorite. She frequently gets the jitters on service and double faults. Athea Gibson would go on to beat Darlene Hard, 6-3-6-2, to become the first African-American woman to win Wimbledon. Uh, for the listeners who may not know, the most prestigious tennis tournament in the world. 18 years before, Arthur Ashe, which we have already mentioned, would become the first African-American man to also win Wimbledon. Uh, Gibson, who won Female Athlete of the Year in uh, 1957 and 1958, would end her tennis career with 11 Grand Slam titles, 5 single titles, 5 double titles, and 1 mixed title, and was inducted in both the International Tennis Hall of Fame and the International Women's Sports Hall of Fame. But as we previously mentioned, she you know, did not have the financial success that her accolades would otherwise say. Venus William, who you cover in your book, Different Strokes, is quoted saying, I am honored to have followed in such great footsteps. Her accomplishments set the stage for my success and through players like myself and Serena, Serena being Serena Williams, Venus's sister, and many others to come, her legacy will live on. Uh, Cecil, in your book, Different Strokes, you write about the impact the American Tennis Association, the ATA had on the beginnings of black tennis uh, from Margaret Margaret and Romania Peters, Ora Washington, Arthur Ashe, Athea Gibson. In your opinion, how would the landscape of tennis be changed if some of those dominant champions of the ATA, you know, prior to Gibson breaking the tennis color barrier in 1950, competed on the professional tennis circuit? What would have been different? I think the record book would look markedly different today. I would compare it to Major League Baseball before Jackie Robinson and Major League Baseball after Jackie Robinson. Yeah, the Negro League superstars who were still young enough to play in the Major League, Satchel Page, for example. Satchel Page was in his 40s when he finally got his chance to pitch for the Cleveland Indians, but he helped them win a World Series in 1948. That was not even Satchel Page in his prime. But Major League Baseball eventually got Jackie Robinson, young Hank Aaron, young Willie Mays, young Larry Doby. These are all... Hall of Famers. They changed the way baseball was played. The early black tennis superstars, like Aura Washington, who was basically a, a house cleaner because that's what she needed to do to make a living. Ten yes, tennis was an amateur sport, but if you were good enough, you could get some endorsement deals, some under-the-table payments, and make a living in the sport. Nobody who follows tennis closely, I'll say very few people who follow tennis closely, know the name Aura Washington. But she was a superstar in the ATA. Um, Edgar Brown was a superstar. Um, there, was, there were so many. Before Althea Gibson, I, I think that more, there would be more black champions of Wimbledon, the U.S. Nationals, the French Nationals, and all the other prominent tournaments if they had been allowed to play. 
And it was really through the, the agitation of uh, a man named Dr. R. Walter Johnson, who coached Althea Gibson, coached Arthur Ashe, and constantly agitated to get the USTA to at least give them a chance to play. That was a factor. Probably an even bigger factor was a, an, a column written in Lawn Tennis Magazine, which was a prestigious publication in the um, 1940s. Um, Alice Marble was the prominent women's tennis player of, of that era. Let's say the Chris Everett of her day, because she was so highly respected. Alice Marble wrote a column basically saying, this was ran in the late 1940s, saying, oh, baseball has integrated, football has integrated, basketball has integrated. If tennis is supposed to be the sport of ladies and gentlemen, why is tennis lagging so far behind? It's time for tennis to integrate. For Alice Marble to say that, it carried more weight because she was a prominent white player. And that led to Althea Gibson getting a chance, and she broke the color barrier in major tennis at the 1950 U.S. Nationals. That was the forerunner of the U.S. Open. Seven years later, the 1957, the article you read, Althea Gibson won Wimbledon for the first time and became an international star. Queen Elizabeth, who doesn't even like tennis, presented Althea Gibson with the Venus Rosewater dish on center court. And when Althea eventually came back to New York, she was given a ticker tape parade along the Canyon of Heroes in New York City. That's usually only reserved for astronauts returning from space or the New York Yankees winning a World Series or the Giants winning a Super Bowl. Althea Gibson is still the only black woman to be so honored. That was 63 years ago. And most people don't even know it ever happened. Althea Gibson made the cover of Time magazine in August of 1957 with a cover story, That Gibson Girl. And later that month, she won the U.S. National. She did the, the, let's say, the Daily Double, the two biggest tournaments in tennis, Wimbledon and the U.S. Nationals. She won both of them in 1957 and in 1958. But since tennis was an amateur sport and she was a, a black woman, the endorsement offers did not come flooding in. And she found it very difficult to make a living. I like how you described it as the record book would be completely different. As we talked about, you know, sports transcends race. And it would have been those things where we would have seen a completely different record book in tennis, specifically for uh, this story than what we have now. But now it's just taking a bit longer for black tennis players to potentially get records uh, where it could have been, you know, uh, 50, 60 years before. I know you mentioned also like the pain under the table and the open era starting in 1968, I believe, and really kind of officiating what tennis could be become and, you know, making money and becoming, you know, kind of connecting it back to that uh, first story, making a living from doing something you love. You mentioned uh, Dr. Johnson. One of the quotes I liked from the book that you added in was, I think this was to Arthur Ashe. He said, don't be as strong or as tough as those white boys. Be stronger, be tougher. From Gibson in tennis, you know, Jackie Robinson in baseball, Willie O'Ree in hockey. What did it mean to be stronger, be tougher? What did that mean? That meant you're going to face discrimination. You're going to deal with athletes who won't want to talk to you in the locker room, athletes who won't want to dine with you. In Althea's case, she was often barred from the dining rooms at these events. She would often have to change her shoes in her car because she could not use the locker room. So Dr. Johnson wanted to prepare his athletes for that. You're going to face some blatant discrimination. 
And it was worse for Althea because she came a decade before Arthur Ashe. Althea was playing in the 1950s. Arthur Ashe came along in the 1960s. One thing that Althea faced that is almost unconscionable, but it happened to her. In the 1950s, the U.S. Nationals were played on two different sites because the singles were played at Forest Hills, a, a facility, the West Side Tennis Club, that tennis eventually outgrew. That's why they moved to where they are now in Flushing Meadows, a bigger space. Because Forest Hills was so small, only the singles championships were played there. The doubles championships, men's doubles, women's doubles, mixed doubles, were played at the Longwood Cricket Club in Boston. And that was by invitation only. Even though Althea Gibson made her major tennis debut in singles in 1950, she was not allowed to play in the U.S. Nationals doubles tournament until 1957 because they simply didn't invite her. So for seven years, she was denied the opportunity to win as many as 14 additional major titles because she was a great doubles player. In a perfect world, Althea, Althea would have played singles, doubles, mixed doubles. It was an amateur sport, so it wasn't like it is today where the star players don't play doubles because they don't want to get hurt. In those days, you played everything. So Althea would have been playing doubles, mixed doubles, and singles in the U.S. Nationals every year from 1950 until 1958. But because of blatant racism, she was denied the opportunity. You know, imagine how many more major titles she would have. That she has 11 is extremely impressive because she was banned from the doubles championship for seven years. Yeah, no, I like, you know, you also include uh, Dr. Robert Johnson talking about, like, specifically for that, he started this development program because he was like, when those doors do open, I want you guys to be ready. I think that's such a powerful idea of what, you know, America was like around these times. Uh, Arthur Ashe also talked about, like, he felt like he had to be the nice guy. He couldn't be that John McEnroe character who goes crazy and everything like that. But he felt like he had to be the nice guy because he was hesitant of like any small infraction potentially causing the end of his career. And I, f I found it very interesting how Gibson, who shared, speaking of Muhammad Ali for earlier, shared that same confidence when she spoke about herself that Muhammad Ali did. And she's less talked about than Arthur Ashe. Yes. Obviously, as you mentioned, Ashe played in the television era, but like Athea, she doesn't have any awards, trophies, stadiums named after her. Um, you, you mentioned how they held an Athea Gibson night and her family was didn't even know about it. You know, she's finally gotten to, you know, she's got a statue in her honor that does not look like a naked sumo wrestler, as you <laughs> say in the book. But it's just so interesting to kind of see how the mindset of these black tennis players, specifically uh, in the sport, had going into a situation where, you know, racism was very prominent in the United States. That's exactly right. And you, uh, you mentioned Angela Buxton earlier. Since tennis was an amateur sport, every year Althea played at Wimbledon and she stayed with Angela Buxton in Manchester, England to you know, cut expenses. Otherwise, she probably would not have been able to go to Wimbledon every year. At least she knew she would have a place to stay for free with a friend. So it's a sport where the black players of that era were expecting a certain amount of discrimination. But I contend that nobody faced more of it than Althea. She was really the first one on, on the major uh, tennis circuit. And Ordinarily, I would have thought, you know, there would be more endorsement offers, more opportunities for her. She had a small endorsement deal with Tip Top Bread for $25,000 a year, a small endorsement deal with Wilson, the makers of her tennis rackets. But that was it. 
uh, comparable uh, male champion at the time, old Don Budge, had a huge endorsement deal with Wilson, so lucrative that he would travel the country playing exhibitions when he wasn't playing the, the tournaments such as Wimbledon and the U.S. Nationals. And Don Budge, don't, I don't begrudge him, but he was able to make a very good living in amateur tennis because of endorsements. Althea Gibson never had that opportunity. She eventually turned to golf. Now, she was talented enough to integrate two sports, major tennis and golf. <laughs> uh-huh. But golf was only her third best sport. The pecking order was tennis, basketball, and golf. There was no WNBA for Althea Gibson to showcase her talents. Then she played in college at Florida A&M University. But by the time she became a professional golfer, she was 36, competing against women who basically grew up playing golf their entire lives. And even though um, Althea apparently could hit the ball a mile, she didn't have the control, didn't grow up with the sport, was never able to win a tournament. So even though you could look at her and say, oh, this was a great athlete, she was so underrated in so many respects. And I want to come back to a key point you made earlier. There is still nothing of prominence named after Althea Gibson in tennis. And that is really the fault of the U.S. Tennis Association. Yes, they unveiled a, a bust of Althea Gibson last year, but there's no context. The bust is outside Arthur Ashe Stadium. And how's that for a contrast? Arthur Ashe's name is on the biggest tennis stadium in the world, 23,000-seat stadium. And outside of Arthur Ashe Stadium, there's a bust with the name Althea Gibson on it, but no context. And I can imagine little kids asking their mommies and daddies, who's Althea Gibson? There's nothing there to say she integrated major tennis. She was the first black player to win Wimbledon. She did it twice. First black player to win the U.S. Nationals. First black player to win the French Nationals. 11 Grand Slam titles in all. World number one. All those things we've talked about. They didn't even put a plaque up to to give context. It's just a black woman's head. And then (laughs) her name Uh below. Yeah. Well, Cecil, I want to ask you, this like from you know, just from your personal opinion, like why doesn't history remember Gibson in the same vein as Ash or Jackie Robinson? You know, for me, like you know, I grew up, I watched tennis, I've I played tennis, you know, but when I was like researching this story, I was like, oh, Arthur Ashe was the first black person, just in general, not based on gender, to win a major a major final, and to come to find out that it was Athea Gibson, and that's, you know, I'm glad this all worked out, that I was able to read about her story and her life, but even me, as a casual tennis watcher, I didn't even know about her. Yeah, I, I think it's the, the double whammy of racism and, and sexism. You mentioned the comparison of how Althea Gibson had a very healthy image of herself. She would basically say things, I'm, I was the greatest. Muhammad Ali would say that and people were charmed by it. They would laugh at it. Althea Gibson was often called arrogant, standoffish, aloof. And I think it was because in our patriarchal society, the media of that day basically didn't like hearing that from a woman. They were not comfortable hearing that from a woman. Yes, she was the best in the world at what she did, but oh, you're not supposed to brag about it. You're supposed to downplay it. You're supposed to credit other people. Well, Althea Gibson was saying, well, I don't want to be called the Jackie Robinson of tennis. And even though she didn't say this to me, I suspect she probably thought, well, I had it harder than Jackie Robinson. You know, I've accomplished a lot. I don't need to be compared to him. 
I should be evaluated on my own accomplishments, not be compared to a man. And because she would not embrace that label that the media wanted to put on her, the Jackie Robinson of tennis, she was criticized. And also her success coincided with the rise of the civil rights era. The Montgomery bus boycott happened in 1956, led by young Reverend Martin Luther King. And the reporters would ask prominent black people, whether they were athletes like Althea or singers like Ella Fitzgerald, do you support the movement? What's your thought on that? Apparently, Ella Fitzgerald gave an answer that was socially acceptable because people didn't criticize her. People didn't say, how come Ella doesn't go to the marches? People seem to understand that she's singing. She's doing her thing. But Althea would say things like, well, I'm not part of that. I'm concentrating on me. And that did not go over well at all. That alienated her from a lot of the black journalists of the era. She didn't have people advocating for her when her tennis career is over. Instead, often the black press was critical of her because she wasn't saying things that were favorable to the movement. I don't know if she was hostile toward it, but she didn't say, I support it. I like what Dr. King is doing. I, I agree with the Montgomery bus boycott. I agree with the sit-ins at lunch counters and the freedom marches and all the things that were going on at that time. Althea was basically saying, I don't want to talk about those things or I'm just concerned about me. I like that you brought up the fact that being confident as a woman in that time period was very much frowned upon. Even I, I would say in today's standards, like if you have a very confident woman, people are like, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> but I do. Yeah. And kind of like what I've read about it. And I, I think it really, yeah, it did, you know, as you're talking about, it came down to her refusing to speak on behalf of the civil rights movement. The reporters did not like that. You know, as mentioned, I'm a white man. I'll never experience the same hardships that a black person of color would. But I do understand the impact in becoming and being a leader, especially when it comes to being the first at something in the case of breaking the color barrier, you had to be at the top of your game. But I believe that does come with responsibilities, uh, the responsibility of normalizing the situation. And with that comes speaking to why normalizing a black woman or a black man in sports is important to our society as a whole. You, you include in your book, and I think you kind of touched on it, but uh, the quote is, the entrance of Negroes in national ten tennis is in inevitable as it is to be proven in baseball and football and in boxing. You know, sports is a human concept. If you say someone based on race, gender, sexuality, religion is unable to compete, time's going to tell us eventually they're going to compete in that sport. It sounds like from the research I've done and, you know, reading your book, Different Strokes, all Gibson wanted to do, and as you mentioned, all she wanted to do was play tennis. That was her escape. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It just happened that her escape led her to becoming the first black person of color to win Wimbledon, to break the colored barrier in tennis. I, I, I found it kind of interesting how you could contrast her journey and Arthur Ashe's journey, like they're very, 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 very good tennis players. Yes. But outside of the court, you know, Athea did not want to get involved in the civil rights movement. She didn't want to. She just wanted to play tennis where Arthur Ashe was all about, you know, even mentioned before his death in 1993, he was arrested at the White House for protesting for Haitians seeking asylum in the U.S. That's right. And he frequently right. talked about how he had that struggle of, you know, spending the time to become or remaining number one in the world while also giving back to his community. So to me, it seems very clear why 
history forgot about Gibson outside of like the tennis world and people who are inundated with tennis. It's just because she wanted to play tennis, but she was just in a very rough period to have that or to say that or have that opinion. That's right. Yeah. Althea Gibson did not have the freedom to be as apolitical as Michael Jordan was. We talked about him earlier. He didn't want to get involved in the 1992 Senate race in North Carolina, so he just didn't. Althea was a superstar at a time when black people were were protesting and rallying and agitating for equality, basically for respect. I mean, the famous signs that the garbage workers wore in Memphis the day before Dr. King was assassinated, I am a man. They had to say that because it was not a given that people would perceive them as men. And you're right. Althea just wanted to be a great tennis player. So she came along too early, a decade before open tennis and professional tennis. Otherwise, they would have needed a Brinks truck for all the money she would have made. (laughs) And she came along at a time during... a civil unrest in this country, you know, a civil rights movement that she basically, because of how prominent she was in tennis, she had to take a side. I wish there were publicists around then, someone who could have taken out the aside and said, this is what you say to those questions. You know, you say something without really telling them anything, but you let the black community know that you support the movement, but you don't alienate white people by saying you support the movement. I did some research and couldn't quite find enough interviews with Ella Fitzgerald, who was as prominent in singing, you know, as as the first lady of song during that same period. She didn't alienate white audiences. They continued to see her and the black community also loved her. So she obviously was able to strike the right balance whenever she was asked about the movement. But Althea just wanted to play tennis and that wasn't good enough for the black press or the black community as a whole, they wanted her to at least express support for the movement. And she didn't. Yeah, I think what you said sums it up perfectly. They wanted her to make a choice and she didn't. It was a time in history where you either had to decide this or that and she didn't want to make a choice. And so she was pushed out of being remembered in history. And as you mentioned, only having a bust with no other information outside of Arthur Ashe Stadium. Exactly. I mean, what the USTA could do now, for example, the women's trophy at the US Open doesn't have a name. It's the only major trophy in women's tennis that does not have a name. It wouldn't hurt to call it the Althea Gibson Trophy, especially when you consider that Althea Gibson grew up in New York City less than 10 miles from the site of the U.S. Open. She's even virtually, well, she's even forgotten in the city in which she grew up. Yeah, that would be like the perfect storm of like everything just makes sense. That's right. I I, I wish they would do it. Uh, They they have Arthur Ashe Stadium as the number one court. Louis Armstrong Stadium is the number two court. That causes a lot of people to scratch their heads, but... Louis Armstrong lived for many years in that part of Queens, New York, and Louis Armstrong Stadium was a standalone concert venue before they built the National Tennis Center around it. So it would have been disrespectful to take his name off the stadium. But the number three court at the U.S. Open is called the Grandstand. Couldn't that be Althea Gibson Court? And that would make people say, well, who was Althea Gibson? And that would lead to people Googling her name and starting a certain exploration to find out who she was and what she accomplished. And the USTA has failed to advance her story. 
No, and I appreciate you know having you on the show and being able to find out her story on my own. It's such a eye opening thing. So I, I appreciate you bringing that. <laughs> Thank you. To Thank me. you, Adam. <laughs> All right, Cesar, are you ready to jump into our final news story of the day? Yes, I am. All right, this is from BBC News Sports. Male footballers should earn more than women, according to the U.S. football authorities. Uh, I know we have a big uh, European audience, I, and I understand soccer or football is what they call it in Europe, but Unfortunately, since U.S. soccer is still back-to-back world champs, baby, woo, uh, we're going to go with soccer for this story, if you're okay with that, Cecil. I am, definitely. All right. In a response to a lawsuit filed by all 28 women from the U.S. women's national soccer team regarding equal pay, lawyers for the U.S. Soccer Federation have submitted a claim that states, the job of a male soccer player on the national team requires a higher level of skill, based on speed and strength, than their female counterparts. Even though the women's team outperforms the men men's team in competitive play, winning four world champions and five Olympic gold medals to the men's single Olympic silver in 1904 and also outperformed the men's team in terms of ticket revenue, uh, $50.8 million to $49.9 million from 2016 to 2018, the players on the women's national team still earn far less than the men. The Federation originally denied the claims, arguing the pay differential between the men and women's player is based on differences in aggregated revenue generated by the different teams and or other factors other than sex. The two teams are also physically and functionally separate organizations. Uh, Circling back to the ticket revenue figures, the men's revenue also includes the fees smaller market opposing teams pay in order to play the U.S. men's national team in an exhibition game. And just to remain factually clear, the men did fail to qualify for the World Cup, uh, I believe in Russia, uh, so during that fiscal period of 2016 to 2018, well, as mentioned, the women won the World Cup. So, the Federation claims that if the revenues were extended out to 2015, which would include a men's appearance in the World Cup, Brazil, I believe, the men's revenue would have overtaken the women's by a margin of $10.8 million. According to a court filing by the U.S. Soccer Federation, the two groups are paid differently due to the difference in their collective bargaining agreements. The men agreed to a pay-for-play structure that is incentive-laden, while the women agreed to guaranteed salaries and benefits. Michael McCann, a writer for Sports Illustrated, states, The male players are paid when they play, but not when they sit. Players must thus be on the roster to be pay eligible. U.S. women's national team players, in contrast, are guaranteed pay. To explain further, if both teams play 20 friendlies a year, a top-tier women's national team player would earn $28,333 less or 89% of the compensation of a similarly situated men's player. If both teams lost all 20 games, the players would make the same amount regardless. This is because the men earn a $5,000 bonus when they lose, which the women do not, but the women have a $100,000 base salary regardless of the outcome. Megan Rapone, a star on the women's team, adamantly stated, We won't accept anything less than equal pay. We show up for a game. If we win the game, if we lose the game, if we tie the game, we want to be paid equally. Period. Uh, Rapone's statement has been supported by the public and the men's national team as well. U.S. Soccer President Carlos Cadero claimed the U.S. Soccer Federation has been able to offer equal pay packages for all matches under their control, but once again, circling back to ticket revenue figures and the men being able to bring in an additional $10.8 million uh, because of their 2014 World Cup appearance in Brazil, the FIFA World Cup, soccer's biggest tournament, is the single biggest factor in the wage gap between men and women's soccer. Based on FIFA standards, World Cup prize money 
which is based on appearances and wins, is awarded to a country's federation, and then the federation then distributes it to the players based on each team's collective bargaining agreement. In 2019, the Women's World Cup had a total prize money pot of $30 million among 24 teams. The champions, U.S. women, walked away with about $4 million in prize money. Now, compared to the 2018 Men's World Cup final, which had a total prize money pot of $400 million among 32 teams, the champions, France, walked away with $38 million in prize money. A representative for the U.S. Soccer Federation pointed to the organization's commitment to supporting women's soccer, including paying the top players' salaries for the National Women's Soccer League, as well as changes made under the 2017 Collective Bargaining Agreement. But when it comes to World Cup bonuses, the Federation argues it is unfair to be held accountable for FIFA's decision when they are simply passing on prize money. See, so based on the information from this article, based on your own solo research, based on your personal opinion, do you believe the U.S. women's national soccer team, the 28 women, have a successful claim to equal pay. I do. And I think it's great that Carlos Cordero, who said those blatantly sexist things, was forced to resign in March for those statements. And he has been replaced by Cindy Parlo Cohn, who is now the first woman president of U.S. soccer. So maybe they will get somewhere because they have this incorrigible sexist Cordero out of the way and a woman who presumably will be more open-minded about things in place as president. I'm all about meritocracy when it comes to these uh, team sports. The U.S. women are by far the best uh, women's soccer team in the world, and they're treated as second-class citizens compared to the U.S. men simply because the Men's World Cup generates so much more money than the Women's World Cup. But the men don't, the U.S. men weren't even there at the last World Cup. They weren't good enough to qualify for a field of 32. That's really an embarrassment that the men could not even make the team. Yet because they are men playing in the World Cup, they believe they're entitled to more money. And Cordero obviously believed that too, talking about the skill level, which is nonsense. If it was ridiculous. If <laughs> were so highly skilled, they would have been in the World Cup. Uh, yeah, they would have exactly. been challenging France instead of watching it at home like the rest of us. They weren't even there. So if ever a women's team deserved pay equity with a men's team, it's the U.S. women's national team in soccer. And I find it interesting that the only country I came across where there is pay equity for the men's and women's soccer teams is Norway. And in Norway, the men agreed to take a pay cut to achieve that equality. I wish the U.S. men would say more than, oh, yeah, we agree with the women. But they don't say we'll take a pay cut. To make things more equitable. I don't think they'll do that anytime soon because in our patriarchal society, we are still indoctrinated to believe that whatever men do is more important than whatever women do. And I think that's reflected in the money that FIFA takes in for the men's World Cup versus the women's World Cup. I did some research on this. Um, Fox Sports owns the rights to both World Cups. Fox Sports paid FIFA $400 million for the rights for the Men's World Cup. Essentially, the Women's World Cup was just thrown in as if, hey, as an added bonus, you can have the Women's World Cup. FIFA should be marketing the Women's World Cup as a separate entity. It should not have to go to the same network. Maybe NBC would have paid FIFA more for the Women's World Cup. Maybe ESPN would have paid FIFA more for the Women's World Cup. It should not have been sort of like a bundle. We'll give you the women if you give us X amount of money 
for the men. FIFA basically markets the men's World Cup and then throws in the women's World Cup. So that's certainly why there's going to be a much smaller a prize purse for the women compared to the men. The sponsorship deals that FIFA makes for the men's World Cup dwarfs the sponsorship deals they make for the women's World Cup. Why can't that be equal? If you're going to whoever, Nike, Chevrolet, whatever the company, if you want to have your signage in the stadiums for the men's World Cup, you need to pay this, but you also need to pay the same for the women's World Cup because it's also going to be televised worldwide. Enough eyeballs are going to see your ads on the billboards during the women's matches, but FIFA goes about it completely differently. They've got this two-tier system where the men's World Cup is obviously going to take in so much more money than the women's World Cup that the men are going to leave with so much more money, and I think male players and especially male soccer executives like Carlos Cordero will come away thinking, oh, the men are obviously better because look how much more money we have to, we, we take in from the men's world. Mm-hmm. I definitely, I, I very much agree with, you know, and support a lot of what you're saying. I think the argument of saying, oh, men exert more than women, I think is complete bullshit. <laughs> but I do also just kind of looking at it from a unbiased standpoint, I understand why it exists. You know, you had talked about, you know, FIFA and the Fox Network deal. At this current moment, when advertisers, investors, media companies want to invest their money in sports, at this moment in our current society, men's sports makes more money. But that's because they've had many, 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 many more years. You know, they've kind of had this jumpstart that the females have. And, you know, eventually I'm not someone who makes a lot of guarantees or promises, but I guarantee hopefully in the near future that women's sports are on the same tier as men's sports when it comes to making money. But, you know, I'm someone who I believe in that money. If the money's not there, the money's not there. You know, specifically, the common argument is the NBA and the WNBA. The NBA generates $8 billion in revenue, the WNBA generates $60 million. You know, it's tough to pay a top WNBA player, you know, what LeBron's making of $130 million plus mm-hmm. when, you know, your whole organization doesn't make that much. And I know people think this is an outdated argument, but it's a factual argument. France, you saw France making more money by winning the tournament than the whole FIFA Women's World Cup had in their whole tournament. I'm someone who very believes when it comes to equality, I I like that you mentioned the Norway taking the pay cut. I think that's a a fabulous idea. But I'm also someone who believes equality should be not group A going down to meet group B, but finding ways for group B to come up to group A. I think yeah. that's, you know, how I kind of see equality, but at the end of the day as we talked about from that first story, you know, professional sports is a business. Yeah. But as we discuss in the Athea Gibson story, in time Barriers are broken. You know, I personally don't think this is a barrier that's going to be broken anytime soon, but that doesn't mean it's not going to in the future, hopefully in a much sooner future. But for me, what these and why I support these 28 women, what these 28 women are doing is nothing short of commendable because what they are fighting for most likely will not benefit them. I firmly believe what makes a good, great leader is someone who fights for a cause 
knowing they may not be able to experience the results that come from their victory. You know, we talked about Martin Luther King. He was very fearful of being assassinated, but he still went out in public. He still spoke what he needed to speak. These women are fighting for the generations and generations of female soccer players to follow. Luckily, we're in a time outside of FIFA and global soccer. Women's soccer is more popular than men's soccer in the U.S., and we had the fiscal and TV data to back that up. I enjoy watching the women's soccer so much more. I think it's amazing to see people supporting this claim, but you know, as we talked about, specifically from the support of the U.S. men's national team, they didn't offer any viable solution. It was a very vague statement, like, oh, we support them, but we're not going to say how it can change. But it is vitally important that we're having this discussion now. Eventually, women's sports will just be as popular as men's sports across the board. As we mentioned, we're seeing that in soccer. We've been seeing it in tennis for years. And by these 28 women being a voice of change and fighting their fight in the present time, that time period between closing the wage gap and ending the wage gap in sports is just going to get shorter and shorter. Like I said, men's sports just had a huge, huge head start when it comes to financially developing their sport in society. I found a recent BBC uh, study that found a total of 83% of sports now reward men and women equally. So we are seeing the change, but yeah, it's it's like I said, it's very commendable of these 28 women to fight this fight knowing they may not be able to reap the benefits. I think that's what the most important thing about this discussion is. It's not going to change tomorrow. It's not going to change today. But eventually down the line, it will be. And we're going to remember these ladies for stepping up, you know, when they didn't need to step up. That's right. That's right. I, I agree with you. I think those are great points. I, we may not live long enough to see that kind of equity in soccer, but they're laying the groundwork for it now. I look forward to speaking with Cindy Parlo Cohn now that she's the president of U.S. Soccer, just to find out where she stands on this. Is she, she's someone who came up on through the ranks because she thinks the way the guys do? That happens sometimes, unfortunately. Or is she someone who could now carry that ball forward and work with FIFA in such a way that they can basically promote the Women's World Cup better and make better sponsorship deals for the women so the pool is not quite so small. I write in the book about pay equity in tennis and how Venus Williams basically led the movement to bring pay equity to Wimbledon just a decade ago. Um, the other three majors, the French Open, the U.S. Open, the Australian Open, had already achieved pay equity, but Wimbledon was the last holdout. And Venus um, appealed to women in Parliament in Great Britain. She wrote an op-ed piece in the Times of London that resonated with people. She um, partnered with other women's sports groups to say, we support your struggle if you support our struggle. And eventually, a female member of Parliament put the question to then Prime Minister Tony Blair through their Prime Minister's Questions, where the Parliament members can question the Prime Minister in a free-flowing exchange that I wish we had in the United States, but hey, <laughs> they, they do it in England, and then they, they do it very well. So the question was put to Tony Blair, do you believe that women should be paid the same as men at Wimbledon? And Tony Blair said yes. And basically, that was game, set, and match. When the Prime Minister is down with it, then it's going to happen. I'd like to see other prominent athletes yes, expressing yes. more public support for the U.S. women's national team mm -hmm. so it doesn't look as if they're on this island by themselves. I'd like to see prominent male athletes and team sports saying, you know, we agree. 
We support the cause. I'm talking about prominent male football players, basketball players, baseball players. They wouldn't lose any money or any endorsements by saying, hey, the best women's soccer team in the world should be paid equal to, let's say, a mediocre U.S. men's soccer team. Why do the men fly chartered flights all the time and the women don't? I mean, there are things that go beyond what they are making, just how they are treated. Women being treated in a second class fashion, yet they're the best in the world at what they do. And the men can't say that. So there are things that U.S. soccer can change immediately. And perhaps now with the first female president of U.S. soccer, maybe from here on, the women will have chartered flights, too. Yeah, it was a shock to me to hear that the men spend more, even though the women play more games, they're in, you know, more tournaments just because, yeah, the men are getting these nice necessities and all these things that, you know, the women aren't exactly getting, even though I would rather watch the women's national team play a game than the men's national team. They suck. <laughs> so it is. it was kind of a shock to see like, yeah, that's especially I think the women are going to take the these 28 women are going to take the lead in really fighting for equality. And hopefully, yeah, the new head of the U.S. Federation, she says, you know what? Yeah, this is a time for me to step up and be a leader myself. Uh, I think that's really important. And then kind of turning this conversation specifically to tennis, you know, you write about the cultural impact the Williams sisters had on shaping the equal pay discussion in tennis. You mentioned, you know, Venus fighting behind the scenes, having that conversation with the the people where they asked, where she asked them to close their eyes and imagine, imagine That's this. Right. How do you, how has their career dominance shifted that discussion? You know, you mentioned that, what was it, Sloane Stevens, who won the 2017 U.S. Open, was the first black woman not named Venus or Serena Williams to win a major title since Gibson. How has their career dominance shifted the equal pay discussion? Well, because of the Williams sisters, the U.S. Open women's final became a primetime event on CBS at a time when there was no primetime coverage of the men's final. CBS put the women's final as a standalone event in 2001 in prime time, and it beat in the ratings a Notre Dame-Nebraska game when both teams were national powers. So more people were interested in seeing these two sisters play each other in the U.S. Open women's final than a major college football game. They have been at the forefront in bringing more prize money into tennis and bringing about the pay equity that we have now. And one of the points that Venus made to the All England Club that runs Wimbledon, she said, hey, when you promote Wimbledon, you have Serena's picture, my picture, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal. So obviously we are just as important as the top male players in promoting the event and attracting sponsorships for the event and going to major TV networks around the world saying, this is what we want from you to televise Wimbledon. You're using the images and the names of women just as you're using the images and the names of, as, of men. It's not just, oh, we're selling Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal and the women are there too. No. They knew that to get the maximum amount of money from global TV networks, Serena Williams, Venus Williams, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, those were the four players they were promoting the most. So, of course, there should be pay equity if you're promoting women equally. So whenever women are bringing in just as much revenue as the men, women should be making as much money mm -hmm. as the men. To me, it's a no brainer. And as you know, people need to get past the. The, the sexism and the, the ingrained way of thinking and recognize that prominent women athletes deserve as much for what they're bringing in as prominent 
male athletes. You mentioned Sloane Stevens. She wouldn't be playing tennis. Madison Keys wouldn't be playing tennis. Naomi Osaka wouldn't be playing tennis if not for the Williams sisters. They have influenced two generations of young women of color to see tennis as a viable option, as something they really want to do. And that continues. Their legacy will extend far beyond their playing careers because they made the dream of being a professional tennis star real to so many girls. And it actually does transcend race. The young woman who won the U.S. Open last year, Bianca Andreescu, a Canadian of Romanian parents, she said to Serena, you're the GOAT. I mean, I know everything about you. You're, you're the greatest of all time. And because of what young Bianca saw in Serena, she wanted to become a tennis player. And now she's a, a global star. So the Williams sisters' impact has been immense, not just among African-American girls, but you know, among the young Naomi Osaka, who was born in Japan, a Haitian father, Japanese mother. But you know, in the third grade, Naomi had an assignment, write an essay about the person you admire most. She wrote about Serena Williams. And a decade ago, Serena told me that when she was in school, she wrote an essay about Althea Gibson. Yeah, at least, you know, the Williams sisters' parents at least taught them about Althea Gibson. The society at large doesn't know who she is yet. I hope they'll read my book and learn about her and appreciate her. Credit to Richard Williams and Oracine Price, the parents of Venus and Serena, because they taught those girls who Althea Gibson was. I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned uh, Venus talking to the Wimbledon crew about, you know, if you're going to use us as equal billing, we deserve equal pay. I think that's something because I'm sure a lot of, you know, listeners at home are being like, well, what can I do? I'm not a part of these governing bodies. But when it comes to investors in media deals, TV deals, what you watch shapes that so much. So, you know, if you're asking, what can I do? It's about watching these events. You know, obviously, we're going to see that shift in U.S. soccer with more people enjoying watching the U.S. women's soccer team than the men's. So we're going to see that. This is, I mean, to make it very, very clear and very, very just bold is TV networks, they don't care what gender it is. As long as their bottom line is, you know, making money, they don't care. They're going to follow wherever the money is. So as a viewer of sports, you're responsible for how these revenues are set up. You know, the WNBA, as we're recording this, just had their draft yesterday. I've seen one article about it on all my news stations. The NFL draft, which is in a couple days, has dominated the news coverage. It's stuff like that. If we want to see the shift in ending the wage gap between men and women's sports, viewers need to shift their focus and try learning about, you know, prominent black athletes like Athea Gibson and really taking the time to switch your viewership patterns to women's sports and saying, hey, maybe I'll check out a WNBA game when it comes back on. Being from Minnesota, we have the Lynx and Lynx games are really fun because they're so good and it's just it's just a fun time. So I think, you know, if you're a listener at home and you're asking yourself, you know, what can I do to help end the wage gap between women's and men's sports? It's about your viewing habits, you know. TV and network people are going to follow the money. And if you're watching something over the other thing, they're more likely to have more money in that. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, the National Women's Soccer League recently signed a deal with CBS. When sports begin to come back in America, their games will be on big CBS, little CBS, the CBS Sports Network, and a streaming service. People need to watch those games. You're exactly right. 
And with the WNBA, people enough people watch the games. The WNBA has been around now for almost 25 years, which is re- remarkable. The NBA got behind it. There are fans of the sport. And it's a shame that we lost Kobe Bryant and his uh, daughter, who was a budding basketball star, whose dream was to be a WNBA star. Imagine if Kobe Bryant's daughter had grown up to become what everyone thought she would be, a WNBA superstar. That would have taken the sport to an even higher level. You're exactly right. People need to watch the events. Um, There's a women's premier league in England. Manchester United finally fielded a women's team after not having one for the longest time. People need to go to those matches and and support them with their dollars and with their viewership of the TV, um, of the matches that are televised. And that's how those sports grow. Oh, Cecil, I want to thank you for taking the time to share some of your perspective on some of the strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful discussion. Once again, listeners, you can connect with Cecil through his website at CecilHarrisBooks.com. Once again, that's CecilHarrisBooks.com or by following him on his Twitter at CecilHAuthor. Once again, at CecilHAuthor on Twitter. Those links, as previously mentioned, will be included in the description of this episode through our Podbean page and under Cecil's episode on our website, watercoolertalkpod.com. Cecil, before you go, uh, your book, towards the end of your book, you transition towards the future of non-white players in tennis. Uh, You specifically mentioned Naomi Osaka, among a few others. In 2017, we had the 100-year anniversary of the American Tennis Association, which we talked about with Athea Gibson and Arthur Ashe, uh, which helped give black players a chance to compete professionally. How does tennis look 100 years from now? Or how should tennis look? I think tennis should be a lot more diverse in all aspects, not just on the court, but in areas of coaching, um, tournament directors, tournament referees, tennis commentators, tennis writers, uh, tennis executives. I would hope that there is more diversity, more women, more men of color in those positions, because when you look at the areas off the court, people of color are still grossly underrepresented. We talked about James Blake earlier, former world number four and a Davis Cup champion for the United States. He's the only black man who is a tournament director today. He is the director of the Miami Open. Of all the tournaments they have, he's the only one. So we need to see more black people of prominence in the other sports. That's why my subtitle is The Unfinished Black Tennis Revolution. The Williams sisters have done much to encourage young people to play the sport, especially young women. And we talked about how um, Donald Young says black boys need to see black men succeeding before they take up the sport. Maybe Francis Tiapo was a promising young African-American player. Maybe he will break through and win a major. But if it's not him, maybe somebody else will. And that will spur uh, more excitement among black boys and young men to, to play tennis. But 100 years from now, I hope that there's just more diversity uh, across the board. Um, there are so many countries that play uh, professional tennis now. I mean, I never thought we'd see champions from Latvia and Serbia, but we have that. And, you know, the, the African nations maybe be more represented in, in the future. Champions from, let's say, Nigeria or, or Kenya, uh, more champions from other South American uh, countries. That's what I hope will, will be the case because it's such a global sport. I'm sure there are boys and girls with dreams of playing professional tennis, they see Serena, Venus, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, 
They want to do it, but do they have the facilities? Are there programs in place that can make it real for someone who does not have a lot of money to at least get coaching and court time and physical fitness training and the ability to travel and play junior tournaments and work your way up? That Those are things that, that really need to change. And um, one other thing, there has not been an African-American umpire of a U.S. Open singles final since 1993. I consider that an underreported scandal. <laughs> the U.S. Tennis Association has the power to change that with the snap of, of their fingers. Okay, we're going to have this person work the U.S. Open men's final this year. They just won't do it. And the USTA has been sued twice, two racial discrimination lawsuits filed by black tennis umpires who have been held back by the USTA. The first time it resulted in uh, a non-disclosure agreement being signed by the two um, plaintiffs. And they basically, one of them went away. He's now an administrative court judge. He left tennis altogether. The other, Sandy French, who was the answer to the trivia question, who was, who was the only African-American to officiate a U.S. Open singles final, Sandy French, 1993 women's final between Steffi Graf and Helena Sukova. She did a fine job. But the next year, she went in there and they said, well, you didn't deserve to work the final last year. She was actually demoted. So that was the loss. That was the first lawsuit. The second one, filed by a gentleman named Tony Nimmons, who was working his way up the ranks, the USTA even called him one of the best umpires in the business. Once they put him in charge of diversity and he started taking that and he took that job seriously from the beginning and started asking the USTA why we don't have basically more opportunities for blacks off the court. And he basically was doing his job and he was punished for that and eventually fired in 2016. So here we are four years later. I don't know of any African-American tennis umpire who was close to getting that prestigious assignment of officiating a U.S. Open final. Again, that's something that, that needs to change. I know people don't tend to focus on who the umpires are or who the referees are, but it matters. Very good point. It does matter. And I appreciate your insight into that question. And, you know, obviously, you know what you're talking about. And I think, you know, I think a lot of what you're saying is very true. And I don't want to add anything because it was so well spoken. So I'll just end it there. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and once again, or as always, thanks to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest hosted today by Cecil, where we take the strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world and just try to good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. And once again, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to reach out to the show with a local news story, or if you just want to share some of your own comments, you can do so at watercoolertalkpod at gmail.com. Cecil, as I mentioned, I have the guests close out the show. However you feel fit for this episode, for this 90 minutes we just talked, the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Adam. I appreciate the invitation. It's the way you, you do the show, tying in news stories with in this case, issues in sports to have a conversation rather than a, a sort of traditional interview. We had a good dialogue. I really enjoyed it. And I like that we spoke a lot about the issue of gender equity. You know, that sort of was a common theme. And it's so important because um, girls do deserve the same opportunities as boys in sports and women deserve the same opportunities as men in sports. And then your talent should dictate how far you go, not your gender or, in the case of race, your zip code, where you come from. I mean, we need to make sure that there are more opportunities for everyone who, who wants them, everyone who's willing to work hard to become successful. I took a deep dive into tennis because 
I, I see the story of blacks in tennis is a microcosm of the story of blacks in America. You know, many people thought after the election of Barack Obama and the re-election of Barack Obama, oh, the race problems is solved. This is post-racial America. Well, nobody says that anymore because that was never true. <laughs> I think people have to be whacked upside the head before they realize, oh, I was wrong about a post-racial society. There's no, it's not, it's not happening. And you can look at tennis and say, oh, the success of Serena Williams and Venus Williams, oh, there are no problems for blacks in tennis, but there still are. And the lack of opportunity off the court is an issue. That has to be solved. And first, it has to be recognized and, and taken seriously. And people of goodwill need to work together to say we need to extend more opportunities and make the sport more diverse in terms of gender and in terms of race, in terms of ethnicity, to give everyone a chance. So I, I hope people will seek out the book and learn about Althea Gibson. I'm glad we spent a good chunk of time talking about her because, you know, she is the best tennis champion most people have never heard of. And she is deserving of more recognition. It's important that the Williams sisters knew about Althea Gibson and, and they used her story as inspiration. And that's what role models can do. It makes the dream more real for you. You see someone whose background may be similar to yours and that person succeeded, then you feel it's more likely that you can succeed. Althea Gibson played a very prominent role in tennis history that has just been under publicized. So my book gives Althea Gibson her due. It gives Arthur Ashe his due. And it also gives Venus and Serena Williams their due in a different way. I don't just focus on what they do on court. I talk about their cultural impact. 16-year-old Coco Goff is the latest sensation in tennis. Well, she was inspired to play by the Williams sisters. And Coco's parents were inspired by the story of the parents of the Williams sisters, they sort of used the same model as did Naomi Osaka's parents. That same model is a, a blueprint that the Williams family has established. This idea may sound crazy to some. Of course, Venus and Serena will be in the Tennis Hall of Fame one day. But I think in the contributor category, Richard Williams and Orsine Price also belong in the Hall of Fame. Because not only did they produce two daughters who were number one and number two in the world for quite some time, but they also provided a blueprint for other tennis parents and has been followed successfully by first, well, Naomi Osaka, Coco Goff, and a name you don't know yet, I'll give you this name, Whitney Osigwe. Her father came from Nigeria, coaches her, they live in Florida. She has star potential. So there's more than just what they've done on the court, it's also what they represent off the court. And one more thing, if I may, this is um, Serena Williams, as great as she is, I contend that she is still underrated. And here's why. Anyone can do this. You go to Google and put in the search engine, most major tennis titles in the open era. Just that. What Google gives you, what Yahoo gives you, what Bing gives you is Roger Federer. There's sexism in the algorithm. The men's record is the default answer. When in fact, Serena has won 23 major titles. Roger has won only 20. The answer is Serena, but the search engines give you the men's record. So despite Serena's fame, her iconic status in the sport, she's still not getting as much recognition as she deserves. 
Well, Cecil, I, I appreciate you sharing your passion. I, I love hearing people's passions. It brings light to my heart. Uh, <laughs> so thank you for that. You know, we'll have to have you on to discuss some other stories in a future episode. But I uh, yeah, I, I appreciate I appreciate the talk. Uh, the same. I really enjoyed the conversation and I am excited for the listeners to listen to this and get their opinions on it. But uh, yeah, until then, everybody listening at home, uh, stay safe, stay sane, and we will see you next time. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. What an episode. What a guest. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, I sure enjoyed it. <laughs> Once again, thank you to Cecil for jumping in on Remote Interview to talk about those stories. As always, make sure to support him and what he does by following the links associated with this episode. You know, I love these are the type of episodes I really love because they're just chock full of interesting information and facts. But that also means, based on the transitive property, that's right, the transitive property, ladies and gentlemen, we're more likely to have something that needs to be corrected. And if you're at home and you're wondering, no, <laughs> I will never look up the definition of the transitive property. So, to the corrections. In the first story regarding Ohio State trying to trademark the word the, the is the most common word in the English language. I was correct about that. But to add a bit more information, the top five most used words in the English language are the, be, to, spelled T-O, of, and, and, uh, the word and. The 30 for 30 ESPN documentary on broke athlete is called, just wait for it, wait for it, it's called Broke, uh, and it is directed by Billy Corbin, who many may know as the director of the documentary Screwball on PEDs in baseball. Cecil mentioned Danica Patrick and Maria Sharapova still being among the highest paid female athletes even in retirement. Danica Patrick is no longer ranked in the top 15 for 2019 by Forbes, but she has a net worth of $60 million, and Maria Sharapova is ranked 7th with $7 million in earnings for the year 2019. To add a bit more information on Michael Jordan and his worth, during his run with the Bulls and then later with the Wizards, he made about $90 million, but since the end of his career, he has leveraged from corporate partnerships an additional $1.7 billion pre-tax, baby, that pre-tax money. And finally, we ended the first story discussing paying student athletes. California passed the Fair Play to Play Act in 2019 to allow college players to make money off their likenesses, but the bill will not go into effect until the 2023 season. During the guest introduction, Cecil mentioned Mayor Harvey Gantz running for senator in North Carolina in 1992. The elections actually ran in 1990 and 1996, where Gantz lost to longtime North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms by 3% and 4% respectively. After the episode, Cecil did email me a correction of his own on there being no black U.S. male senators. Currently, as of May 2020, there are two black male senators, Cory Booker of New Jersey and Tim Scott of South Carolina. And finally, the book I mentioned where the main character travels back in time using baseball cards is called Satchin Me, which was part of the Baseball Card Adventures series written by Dan Gutman. And then finally, in the third story regarding equal pay for the U.S. women's national soccer team, I incorrectly pronounced the name of soccer star Megan Rapino, which I, I don't even know how that happens. I'm a huge fan. But to further double down on the pronunciation, here is Megan Rapino herself to address 
the correction. Rapino. Rapino. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Megan, for uh, the correction on that. That was not purposely for the show. But you know what? A little white lie never gets anyone in trouble. And finally, Cecil mentioned the change in leadership among the U.S. Soccer Federation. Carlos Codero resigned on March 12, 2020, over criticisms on the legal stance taken by U.S. Soccer under his administration towards the U.S. Women's National Team, uh, like Cecil had mentioned. And he was replaced by Cindy Cohn, who was a member of the 1999 FIFA Women's World Cup champion U.S. team, which many probably remember with the iconic moment, one of I would say one of the most iconic moments in women's sports history with Brandy Chastain celebrating after winning the World Cup. All right, Water Coolings, that's another Corrections Corner. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to another episode of This Here Old Show. Once again, thank you to Cecil for joining us and talking about some of the strangest and most weirdest news stories the world has to offer. Make sure to learn more about Cecil and his latest book, Different Strokes, by following the links associated with this episode. But as always, that's your Corrections. That's your episode. So get out of here! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. Hey, water coolings. We had an update to the U.S. Women's National Team news story that we have covered in Cecil's episode a few days after the release of the actual podcast episode. So I wanted to add a quick update from myself and Cecil about our thoughts. Gary Klossner, a U.S. federal judge, has thrown out the U.S. Women's National Team claim that they're paid less than the U.S. Men's National Team, finding that they earned more overall for each game. In his statement, from 2015 to 2019, the time covered in the actual lawsuit, the women made an average of 220000 $747 per game, while the men made an average of $212,639 per game. But Klausner did not address the fact that the women had won more games over this period, which would result in higher bonuses. He also claimed that based on their collective bargaining agreements, both parties had agreed to the terms of service and payment. The claim of unfair travel differences, as we mentioned, uh, the U.S. men's national team using chartered planes, will continue but the equal pay lawsuit has since been demissed. For me, what I said in the episode still holds. In the bigger picture, these 28 women are fighting for a better tomorrow for women's sports. For them, today might be a bump in the road, but it sets precedence for women across all sports to standing up and fighting for equal pay. As I mentioned in the episode from that BBC report, 83% of sports now have equal pay. Today, we stand at 83%. Tomorrow, because of what these women are fighting for, that number is going to be 100%. As for Cecil's response, I will parrot his words exactly from our email exchange. Cecil states, as for the judge dismissing the U.S. Women's National Team's case for a pay equity, I'm glad the women will appeal, but I worry that they will run into another male judge who seems to share this judge's view that the U.S. female soccer players are doing well and should not be comparing themselves to male players. It is similar to what I used to hear from guys who argued against pay equity in tennis, because the women can't beat the men. It's an asinine argument. I have not read the 32-page ruling by the judge, but the articles I've read strongly suggest that he believes women are doing well, so why complain? Women are fighting against generations of assumptions that whatever men do in sports is more important than whatever women do. Women continue to get less media coverage, far fewer advertising revenue, and smaller attendance. But none of these things make U.S. men's soccer a superior product. It's simply not. Aluta continua. The struggle continues. Thank you to those who have reached out to share their thoughts on the story and the episode in general. Uh, for stories that have immediate updates after releasing a podcast episode, I will try to do my best 
to update the episode with an add-on and open up a dialogue with the guest on their thoughts. You know, you're probably you're probably sick of hearing it by now, but it's important. I strive to be as informationally accurate as possible in each episode because it's vital when you have a platform to share truth. Power comes from truth. Water cooler talk, any media I release will always be a reflection of that statement. So stay safe, stay sane, and I look forward to you listening to me talk for 90 minutes on our next episode. All right, bye.